But I guess I don't ever think about that I'm throwing him out. I don't ever think that I'm killing anything. From Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago, Illinois. I don't think that any work is wasted. I think that all work is cumulative. This is Half Hour. Welcome back, uh, listeners, to Half Hour. This week we've got me, Cliff Chamberlain. James Vincent Meredith. Karen Rodriguez. And me, Caroline Neff. And Caroline, this week we've got a conversation with you and our esteemed playwright ensemble member, Rajiv Joseph. I don't think I've ever met Rajiv in the real world. Uh, I've talked to him through email. I'm curious, have you ever met Rajiv before this conversation? I have. And, uh, you know, I feel like his presence always feels a little bit like Brigadoon. It's like it's just sort of it's there like when, when you're least expecting it. So I actually I think the first time that I met him was I don't remember if it was when I saw guards at the Taj at the Atlantic, if I met him that night. But I'm trying to think if I've ever actually met him within the confines of the Steppenwolf complex. Hmm. And I'm not I'm not sure that I have. But that's what's cool about what we're doing right with this podcast, you know, getting to know these guys like I've never met Rajiv. Like so when I listened to this podcast that you had with him, um, I learned so much about this person, like as a human being as an, and kind of as an artist, you know, and it's kind of interesting that we do this podcast and this is how we meet some of our new ensemble members. But I, I really, um, as the kids say, I'm here for it. <laughs> I danced with him. What? Does that count? Yeah, it yeah. counts. Yeah, that, counts. that counts twice. Where? <laughs> Uh, on opening at Steppenwolf for Guards at the Taj, and they had like this like dance party um, at the 1700 space, um, and we threw down. We all threw down. <laughs> Is there a video of this? Yeah, there's a video. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. There's no record of that. What are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> well, Guards at the Taj, um, which I know last week's guest Amy Morton directed. That's how I know Rajiv, at least through Steppenwolf, seeing that play. Um, it was amazing. So Rajiv also joined our ensemble at a really interesting moment in history. We had just produced uh, Guards of the Taj. He joined our company in 2018, while King James was still very much in development. So we have a new history with him that is blossoming towards a really robust future. But we're in this moment right now where we all get to learn about him, I feel like, collectively, not only as an ensemble, but as like our community is getting to know Rajiv. And I love the fact that he was willing to sit down and, and do this because he's busy. Yeah. Yes. He's a Pulitzer finalist, y'all. What the hell? Yeah. He, he, he knew Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He hugged Robin Williams. He wrote the movie <laughs> Draft Day. With what? Kevin Costner. Wow. Come on, man. For real? I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> listen, should we listen to this conversation? Yes. Caroline, what do you say, huh? I hate the sound of my own voice, and I say we do it. All right. <laughs> uh, everyone out there, without further ado, here's Caroline Neff with Rajiv Joseph. Welcome back, everyone. This is your half-hour call. Please sign in if you've not already done so. Half-hour, please. Rajiv Joseph, hi. How are you? I'm good, Carolyn. How are you? Um, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm, um, you know, staying busy and, um, yeah, which is good. And you're in Cleveland right now? I am, yes, which is where I grew up and where 
I've been spending most of my time during the pandemic, even though I usually live in New York. And how how long did you live in Ohio? You were there through college, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I born and raised and then went to college here. I went to college at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And then that was it. Then I and then I and then I left after college or about a year after college. And do you have siblings? I do. I have one brother. Uh, he's younger than me. He is a musician. He plays for the Buffalo Philharmonic in Buffalo, New York. But what is the age difference between you two? Five years. I'm five years older than him. And both artists. Are your parents also artists? Or did, was that kind of just happenstance <laughs> that you both found art, that you both found music or writing? I wouldn't say it's happenstance because my parents are not professionally artists, but they are art enthusiasts. And they exposed my brother and I to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the arts growing up. And so it was always a part of our lives. And I don't think it was their intention to set us on the path of pursuing it as a career, but um, <laughs> we both did. And, you know, it's kind of worked out for both of us. So after you um, graduated from uh, Miami University, you joined the Peace Corps, right? Yes, that's correct. And where did you end up? I was in Senegal in West Africa. Um, and I ended up spending about three and a half years there. Um, it's Peace Corps is generally a two two year commitment, but I liked it so much that I signed up for another year and a half. <laughs> the first two years I was in the same place, and that was the um, that was like the legit experience. That was in this very remote village, uh, far from even a paved road. Um, I had a I had a motorbike that could get me around a motorcycle and. Uh, you know, my, my village was had no electricity, had no running water. Um, I went to the well every day to get my water to drink and to bathe with. And um, it was kind of like camping for two years. You know, you had candles and lanterns and flashlights. And because once the sun went down, that, <laughs> that was it. You know, it was um, it was really like roughing it um, and really kind of awesome. I mean, it was it was a, it was a beautiful experience. And I got to leave. I would I would drive out to the closest city, which was about on the motorcycle was about a two, two and a half hour drive and um, get my mail and see other volunteers and be able to speak English and drink beer. Um, but uh, then you go back to the village and it was very Spartan, very, um, you know, very solitary uh, in, in a way, very communal too. You're, you're there with the village, but, um, but it, was, it, was a, it was a unique experience. And when I think back to it now, this is 20 some years ago, I... I don't know how the hell I did it because I don't think I could do it now. <laughs> I was going to ask what, I mean, the, because you were what, 22, 23? Yeah, around that, yeah. So what made you right after undergrad decide to join the Peace Corps and not sort of go a different path, either directly to graduate school or in, into, your, in, into your career? I didn't know what my career was going to be. I had no, no inkling that I'd be in the theater at all. Um, I did not have ambitions to be a playwright at that time. Um, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I thought I was going to be a writer of fiction. Um, but I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, was, um, I had had an aunt and an uncle. My aunt met her husband uh, through the Peace Corps. And then I had like three teachers in high school that were also in Peace Corps Africa. And so I, it, it was always kind of on my radar as a thing to do. And, um, and I was really uh, interested in it. And I, I liked the idea of an adventure. I liked the idea of... Um, I liked I liked the, the the program of the Peace Corps. I, I liked what it was offering me and what it was offering you know uh, the rest of the world, I guess. And um, and I was I was really excited to do it. And I just felt like I had been living in Ohio my whole life, 
and um, needed to kind of stretch my boundaries a little bit. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, it, it really impacted me as a person and as a writer and, um, and gave me a sort of like bedrock, I think, of, uh, you know, just con- considering global stories, um, stories outside of like the confines of suburban Ohio. <laughs> was, was there something that happened during your time there that sort of catapulted you into wanting to be a playwright or, a sur- or, or, or further ensuring that you knew that you wanted to be a writer of some kind? Or was that where you were like, actually, I want to write plays? Or how did that, how did that transformation happen? So I, I thought I wanted to be a, a fiction writer, a, to write a novel or write short stories. But then I, when I moved back to the United States, um, first I moved to New York, and in part simply because I had a friend there that was living there who helped me kind of like just get a job, a survival job, and you know put me and got got me a place. And I had a couple of friends from college who were working in Los Angeles in the movie industry, and they said, "Hey, write a screenplay. Like we can." We can you can give me the screenplay and I can put it under my boss's door and so I did and of course those those kind of things very seldom work out and I didn't but um, it got me into thinking about writing screenplays I loved movies and I thought I could write dialogue well so um, then it, as it happened there was nine uh, eleven and I lost my job and a lot of people in New York lost their jobs and the economy was in the tank and. Um, I was on unemployment and I was like, I don't have, I don't know what the heck I'm doing with my life and I don't know where I'm going to get my next job. And and so I decided to go to grad school and I went to the Tisch School of the Arts uh, dramatic writing program, which to, to be a screenwriter. I, again, I, I, I wasn't even considering playwriting or theater in any way. At, to this point, at this point, I'm about 28 years old and I've, I've never seen a contemporary American play. I had seen musicals, you know, when I was growing up in Cleveland and maybe on Broadway, I'd seen a couple of musicals, and I liked them very much. I had done a little acting in, in high school in, in musicals again. But, like, I had never seen a, a straight play that was written by a living author, you know? And I didn't consider it um, something that I would ever do. Uh, then I went to NYU to be a screenwriter, but it was a screenwriting and playwriting program, and we got to go to a lot of theater, and that's when I first started seeing the theater that... I would start to emulate <laughs> um, living American playwrights who were writing of our time now. And the, these experiences had a pretty big impact on me and uh, switched my focus from writing for the screen to writing for the stage. I mean, what an incredible jumping off point because you don't have any any like preconceived notions about what it is. You're like, I know I'm not going to write Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. And and that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about your plays is they they don't follow forms that I feel like I was taught in college. They 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 feel visionary to me in a way because for instance, I don't usually see a compelling full two-person play and you have a bunch of them. <laughs> and then you have the ability to sort of jump over to something much bigger like, you know, like Archduke or do, do you, do you approach those differently if you're writing sort of one of those intimate plays with that's only two people like Guards of the Taj or Gruesome Playground Injuries um, versus when you're writing something a little bit more epic in scope? Sometimes it doesn't, I don't approach it, you know, I, I don't know I'm writing a two-hander until I've started writing a four-hander or something. Sometimes you, I begin writing a story and there are many characters and then slowly those characters get winnowed down to 
two or three, you know, or something like that. Um, I don't, I don't always set out to do that. And then sometimes I do. In, in this case of King James, I always knew that was going to be a two-hander. Um, and I've, I've, I've come to this realization for myself that like, I really enjoy two-handers and, uh, and think that they are cool. You know, like I, like they're like, the motorcycles of plays, you know, <laughs> they are, they're fast and they are efficient and, um, and they're a little dangerous. And, uh, and so I, I really enjoy writing them. And, um, but I think it's, it's it, every single play I approach is different. And, you know, Guards of the Taj started out as this like 10 character play that was like four acts and took place both in 1600 and in modern times and went back and forth between the two and was like a god awful mess and uh, and then it was like I threw it away, but kept thinking about it. And then was like, oh, I think I like this. The only the only part of this play I liked was like the two smallest characters, these guards. And so I was like, maybe I'll take everything else out and just keep them. And then that's how that play came about. That's terrifying. <laughs> and like, and so amazing to hear because I'm, I'm in one of the one of the stories that I hear sort of consistently from you about directors that you've worked with or dramaturgs that you've worked with is that you have the capability to write an entire draft of a play, throw it out, and start over. Did you have to learn that skill of being able to sort of let go? Or is that something that's inherently in you, inherently in your creative process? I guess, you know, there's there might be, like, a, a different way of thinking about this, which is that, like, you know, like, the, the phrase that so many people use is like, you have to be able to kill your darlings, right? You have to be able to kill your babies. And, and that is, you know, reflected all, I mean, it's connected to what you just said, like, do, you, do I have a hard time throwing something out? But I guess I don't ever think about that I'm throwing them out. I don't ever think that I'm killing anything. I don't think that any work is wasted. I think that all work is cumulative. And so for me to, quote unquote, throw a draft out, does not mean that I'm abandoning it or, or considering it a waste of my time. It's all, it, it goes back into a sort of um, creative cauldron, <laughs> you know, that I'm cooking from. And so the original 10-person four-act draft of Guards at the Taj uh, is contained in the two-person one-act version of it. It just had to be reduced. And so... I would never have gotten to the second draft if I hadn't done the first. And so I think that for me, it's never about considering that work I've done has to be held onto. It, it's, it will be held onto. It just might have to be held onto in a different way. Um, and I think that this is important because it's, um, you know, this is what it means to develop something, you know. Um, I think that there is a... Um, oftentimes a a fallacy that people who uh, who are especially starting something out like that I had as a, as a young writer that art kind of erupts from you it's the sort of idea that you know artists are these magicians who make these incredible things that um, come from their unique and twisted minds and come out on the page and are, are perfect and um in fact, we're craftsmen and craftspeople, you know, like we are, we are working tediously and uh, at length and, you know, at, with, with, with a lot of sweat to, um, to slowly make something that's worthwhile. And I think that's, that's the key, you know. And so um, 
yeah, for me, it's not about throwing anything out, but it's about understanding that everything is recycled. All right, everyone, 15 minutes, please, to the top of the show. 15 minutes. You also have um, a, a history of, of frequent collaborators like R.E.M. Wyatt and Omar Metwali, Glenn Davis. Do you enjoy writing for specific actors or does it, does it change piece to piece? Does the specificity shift? Um, when you have a certain person in mind, or is it just like, actually, I know this person can fit in the world of this play, therefore they're they're in it? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, if in a few cases, I have written for an actor. Um, I wrote the part in King James for Glenn. I wrote the part in Guard, the two parts in Guards of the Taj specifically for Aryan and Omar. Um, but also knowing that other people could play those parts, obviously. Um and I think there's there's a there's a great freedom for a writer when you know you're writing for an actor or actors. But you know, at the end at the end of the day, it's it's more about like I think you begin with that, but then it then it gets into this the the, the deeper parts of 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 creating a story. And, and and you know, I forget that I'm writing for Glenn or Aryan or Omar because I'm I'm suddenly writing Babur or Humayun or Sean, you know, and uh, these are characters that have slowly crystallized in my brain after, you know, many, 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 many drafts. And so it, they, they become just roles, characters, you know. And so I, I just enjoy it when I can work with excellent people like Glenn, Arian, and Omar, and Amy Morton, and Anna Shapiro. Um, these are people that like, have made me a better writer um, and a better thinker. Um, you're, you're just luckier as an artist when you can do that. And I think that's what's so valuable about it having an ensemble like Steppenwolf does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got to see Guards of the Taj both in, at, in New York and here at Steppenwolf. And one of the things that struck me and continues to strike me about a lot of your plays is this, this dichotomy, this juxtaposition, but I do, I find it so fascinating about your work because you're able to have like these incredibly morbid moments, like when, when, the two men and guards are are slipping in blood and yet it's like, it's incredibly funny, you know, an archduke where like the guy is like messing up the skeleton and it just kind of becomes this like very funny visual joke that I get to enjoy. But then, but, but then it sort of sinks in about what I'm laughing at. I don't know. Are those two worlds that you live in pretty frequently? It's like the, the, the morbidity of, of life. And then like the, you know, the, the humor of it. it feels like a very sort of Irish thing to me. That's mm-hmm. my, my, you know, my, my family's all Irish and they're like, I mean, you can't help <laughs> but laugh when something is that sad. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why I like theater is that it's, um, it's a place where like that juxtaposition can be endured or tolerated. Um, it's not that it doesn't exist in real life, that there, it, it does exist in the real world that there is a like, um, this like thin membrane between the ridiculous and the sublime or the tragic and the comedic, but it is often unbearable to us or it's, it's often, it's often, uh, it, it doesn't occur to us until afterwards, you know, until many years afterwards, you know, like the, the, when tragic and terrible and awful and gory things happen in real life, we do not think, ah, how absurd and funny, um, we think how awful and tragic, but what theater allows us is the ability to 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 understand it in in this in this sort of um, different way, you know, in a, in a way that because because we we know it's not real, 
you know, we, we know what we're watching is an imitation, a, uh, you know, a, uh, an abstraction of a story or, or of, of, of something that could happen or something that did happen or something that's imagined. But like, I think that's, that's what's, you know, that's why, that's why we like to go to the theater and, you know, that's why we like to be, have stories told to us is because we can, we can hold, we, we, we can be engaged and have our hearts broken by something while at the same time laughing at it or understanding that it's not totally real. And, uh, and it provides this sort of inner relief. Um, and I think that also it's like when I'm writing really, you know, messed up things um, or like hard, tragic things or like gory things, um, I think I'm, I'm, I, I often find that it is funny to me that I'm doing that. <laughs> um, and I'm like, man, this is crazy. And then it's like, then the humor just kind of tumbles out from there because it's like you're putting characters in a, in a terrible situation. You're playing God and you're like, of course I'm going to make them say something funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do you get inspiration for your plays? Um, it, they, it always happens in different ways and there's, there's, I don't go to one place or I don't, I haven't figured out a single place to, that can offer it to me. You know, um, Bengal Tiger came from a newspaper article, um, Archduke, I don't know, it came from like the, it came from a different sort of story I was writing and it interrupted from there and then through research and reading and curiosity, um, I wrote this play called Animals on a Paper, which is about origami, and that play that that occurred to me when I was on a bus sitting next to a woman, like a greyhound bus, in the middle of the night, and she was doing origami, and we just started talking about origami, and I was like, that's what sparked that play. So I mean, it was um, there's all sorts of different places it comes from, but I think for me, it's so, so much about creating artistic products. Um, is selection, you know, like I, there's so many things that like I find fascinating every day, but like they don't all make the cut, you know, it's all about like, well, is this, does this idea have legs? Is this idea going to serve me well and serve an audience well? And a lot of times that's just trial and error. Now, Red Folder, which is the short animated piece you did for the digital series Steppenwolf Now, it's just stunning. Thanks. Of course. It's again, unlike Anything I've ever experienced from you as a writer, and now also as an illustrator, because you did the illustrations, right? Right. Is that something you've always done? Have you always been a drawer or a doodler or something? I have for like the last 20 or some years, um, I have. But I've only done them for my personal enjoyment or for like friends, you know, like little doodles in, you know, that I would give to people. But like never something I ever shared publicly or thought because because the, the 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 drawings you know they're 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 simple you know they're one dimensional i i cannot draw well right i do i do not have an ability to draw anything realistically um i can draw my, my, my drawing skills are that of a child the story is that of a child so it actually thematically works um they 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 have a um a consistency to them do you know my dad is an an amazing artist. He he can he can paint and draw very realistic and beautiful things. And growing up, I was so jealous of his talent. I was like, because he would he would help me with school projects and make these beautiful things for me. And I couldn't even start to do that. I was so incapable of of creating something through drawing. And so when I finally found my way to, I was like, I can do this. I I, I can do a very simple line drawing of a stupid looking guy. Um, it's a cartoon, um, but. I, I've, it's something that I've done sort of 
as a hobby and as something to entertain myself. And um, and when this pandemic began and so many th- uh, theaters were doing these virtual uh, pieces and I did a couple for other theaters and then Steppenwolf asked me to do a more substantial piece for this, you know, program that they're doing. I was, I wanted to do it, but I was, I was frustrated by the, the virtual pieces because in my mind, like they, you know, they're, they're, they're hard to pull off, you know, and some of them have been quite beautiful and stunning, but, um, but the, you know, some of them also for me, I was like, these are neither theater nor television, you know, they are kind of this dead zone between the two. And, um, and it was in part also just the frustrations and, and despair that was coming from having this pandemic and having this lockdown and having theater be removed from our lives. So I was like, well, I want to do something different. And I thought, well, what if I did this? And it was the, the inspiration was more of like a storybook, you know, like when you are a child and your parents or your librarian is reading to you a book, you know, and holding the pages up and you're seeing like still images, but hearing the story read to you. That's the impulse behind Red Folder. It was such a cool experience watching it because, as you said, the drawings are sort of simple and one-dimensional, but they're so evocative of that time period in your life when you're a kid and everything kind of looks simple and, you know, you don't understand the intricacies of the world yet. And so you're, you you are kind of watching it in one dimension, but as an adult watching back, I felt very connected to my childhood self who's like, looking at things just get bigger and bigger and more unmanageable and more unmanageable, not having that vocabulary. And then I felt so moved and entertained and so connected, even though I was sitting in a room by myself. And that's been a really hard thing to achieve in, in, in this medium that we've been, that, that we're forced to sort of live in right now. Right. Um, just to go back ever so slightly Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo was your first play on Broadway, right? My only play on Broadway. Yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And where did it start? It didn't start in New York, did it? No, it started in Los Angeles at the Center Theater Group, um, which is the same theater that's co-commissioned King James. Um, Center Theater Group did it first at the Kirk Douglas Theater. They brought it back for the second year at the Mark Taper Forum. And at that point, um, it got some traction and then came the following year to Broadway, the Richard Rogers Theater. With Robin Williams in the starring role, yep. Glenn Davis also, um, Ariam was also in it. Ariam White, yep. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that experience like, kind of being catapulted not only onto a Broadway stage, but also with this legendary comic performer who later in his life was finding such exquisite dramatic outlets um, for, for, for his talent. What was that like? <laughs> it was, um, it's, it was more than a dream come true, uh, in, in ways that I still struggle to articulate. Uh, Robin was a hero of mine from an early age as he was for a lot of people. Um, I, uh, idolized him as a kid. Um, I even, my mom even found, uh, a little thing I had written in like the sixth grade where, um, he had to write who your hero was. And I wrote about Robin and I gave him a copy of that for opening night. Um, he was a, an incredible guy, um, a wonderful person and performer. Um, when we hired him, you know, the, the initial, the, the sort of like the Intel on Robin Williams is that he's an uncontrollable force of nature that will go off book at the first, you know, drop of a hat. And people are like, how are you going to control Robin? 
And it was, you couldn't have been farther from, from the truth with him. He does that when he is on late night talk shows or when he's doing his comedy. But when he's in a play, he is the most uh, conscientious and generous castmate to the others and never went off book, um, never deviated from the script. And if he did, he, he would ask me and we'd talk about it. And um, it was, was just a very uh, thoughtful, curious and lovely man to to be around and to to work with and uh, i think that all the other castmates agree and and that was the that was the another great thing about it was seeing how much he enjoyed it he really had a blast doing the play and i would be backstage sometimes during shows and he would come out um off the stage with uh with brad fleischer and glenn davis and he would be like they'd be high-fiving and he'd be laughing and he'd be like that was great they loved it they loved it that was great and uh and so that was, it was fun to see him having so much fun. Oh, what a cool gift. What a cool gift to be able to give somebody is that kind of, yeah. that, that, that kind of excitement, you know, every day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our podcast is called Half Hour. Um, and we sort of came up with that because we collectively were all thinking about what that sort of magical time period is before curtain. Um, and I'm curious what your half hour is, whether it's before you're, you're pitching a show or you're waiting for your first preview or it's opening night. Do you have um, do you have a half hour routine where you sort of gear up for whatever is ahead of you? You know, it's it's different for a writer than it is for an actor. I think that actors um, it's that's that's really this sacred time to kind of center yourself and to. Um, to begin to focus and for for a writer half hour is really just it's like this anticipatory time of like i have nothing to do right like I, I, it's the, the work is out of my hands at this point um and so my half hour is uh it's generally drinking um <laughs> I, if i'm being totally honest but um if not that uh probably sitting in the back row of the house uh with my notebook and just uh Biting my nails. <laughs> Attention, everyone. This is your five-minute call. Five minutes, please. Five minutes to the top of the show. Five minutes. And now we've come to the lightning round questions. All right. You ready? Mm-hmm. What was your welcome to Steppenwolf moment? Uh, it was before. <laughs> it was before I was a member of the ensemble, uh, oddly enough. But I. It was. Um, I, I met Anna Shapiro in in the lobby at the, at the front bar um on a very 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 cold winter morning um a couple days after my play described the night had opened in new york and i had come to chicago to stay at a friend's apartment who was out of town she was giving me her apartment to do some other writing in for like a weekend and i because i wanted to get out of new york and i uh and i wasn't in best of spirits um and I sat down with Anna, and we just had this lovely conversation. And I just thought to myself, uh, this is an awesome space, and this is an awesome woman. And I left with such a warm feeling, and I think that that was, that was it. Even though I, I, it was probably about a year and a half later before I was asked to join the, the ensemble, um, I knew they were about to do Guards of the Taj. And, and I, felt, I just felt like a real sense of uh, welcome from her and from that space. What job didn't you get that broke your heart? Uh, I wrote a pilot for, uh, for television that I was paid to do, 
Um, so I got the job to write the pilot, but then the, the pilot was not picked up. And, um, and so that, I guess that would be it, that I had, I had put a lot of work into it and I really liked it. And I still think it's really good, um, but it did not make it. And then it just kind of died on the vine. And so um, and because I was hired to do it, the material isn't mine, so I can't use it again. And so that kind of sucks. Um, what animal do you most identify with? Tiger. Um, I was born in the year of the tiger. My high school, Cleveland Heights High School, is the Tigers, and uh, I got my first success with a play about a tiger. Uh, what's your most prized piece of play memorabilia? Um, I'll show you. Um, I know you can't see it on the podcast, but I have it right here. <laughs> For the opening of Gruesome Playground Injuries in New York, my uh, agent and friend, Giovanna Sardelli, my agent, Seth Gluen, gave me a Gruesome Playground Barbie. And uh, for those who can't see it, this is a Barbie doll in a wheelchair, missing limbs, having a bandage, bloody bandage across her head, um, and uh, one of her feet is chopped off, and um, a tooth is missing. And it's a pretty awful, terrible sight, and I love it. And um, it sits on my bookshelf, Gruesome Playground Barbie does. And uh, a few years ago, when my... Buddy from Peace Corps, my, my two friends, they actually got married. They were both in Peace Corps with me. They came to my house for Thanksgiving, and they brought their three daughters, the oldest of which was about 10, the youngest, which was about five. They walk into my apartment, and like within two seconds, they're all just staring up at Gruesome Playground Barbie with their mouths open, being like, what the hell happened to your Barbie doll? And I was like, well, it's a long story. <laughs> um, all right, Christmas gifts for the family. Mm -hmm. Inspiration. Um, what artist is giving you the most inspiration right now? Oh, man. This is a tough one. Uh, I, I've been reading this very uh, interesting book by this woman named Joy Williams called 99 Stories of God. And um, there are these little vignettes about, um, not about God, but about they're kind of like little tiny spiritual stories. And... Um, I found uh, a lot of inspiration from that book. What do you daydream about? I daydream about exercising. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do yeah. one of these days. <laughs> um, if you had a superpower, what would it be? I think about this a lot, actually. Um, and uh, I think it's kind of fucked up, but I would want to be <laughs> a pyrokinetic which is basically like Firestarter, the little girl from Firestarter, the Stephen King novel. Um, I think that would be a really uh, powerful power. <laughs> um, and I don't know why I think about it so much. And it's kind of a bleak superpower. Like it's basically wreaking destruction everywhere. Um, but uh, I guess that might reflect how I feel about the world. <laughs> Um, what is one thing you do every day? Well, every day I, I have a cup of hot water and lemon um, and maybe some herbs in it um, and go for a walk. That's something I do every day. What is your favorite place to unwind in Chicago? Front bar. <laughs> um, if you were a character in a play, what would your character's description be? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh... It's so funny because I, I don't really do character descriptions. I don't write them, 
you know, I, I like I generally just say like the age. So I'm like, I guess my 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 characters are you know, like Rajiv, comma half Indian, half white, comma forty six. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, this is your Places Call. Places, please, for the top of the show. Have a wonderful show tonight. Places, please, places. Boom. Awesome. (laughs) I know, right? Let me tell you, Creative Cauldron is my new slogan for life and for my career. Um, Hearing Rajiv talk about just the idea that nothing is wasted um, and just that all the work is cumulative, you know, t- him talking about throwing away drafts, but not thinking of them as being lost, that it's all part of the process. There's so many things along the road, um, whether or not it's even in the rehearsal process or just in the life process of being an artist that can be seen as mistakes or hard or um, failures, but it all leads to where we are today. And in Rajiv's case, it's a Pulitzer finalist, esteemed playwright, total badass. (laughs) I would totally piggyback on that. The idea of needing to go through um, a process, you know, to get to your end point, you know, you got to do a first draft before you get to the second draft and how he's not really precious about holding on to certain things, but knowing that they are placed to the side until he comes back to them, whether it's like a month or two months or a year or whatever. Um, which is why I could never be a playwright because everything I wrote would be so hard to come up with that you'd have to kill me to get me to put it in a drawer. <laughs> yeah, I, I also really loved um, what you're kind of speaking to, James, is like how curious he is. And it really makes for a very surprising person. And I think, you know, I, if, if for anybody that's ever worked with me, I'm always on a quest to find the perfect opening night gift. I can say that I think all of us are feeling rather inspired by Gruesome Playground Barbie, and it will now <laughs> be my life's goal to come up with something as brilliant and perfect as that. So yes. the standard, the bar has been set, yeah. Uh, as always, we're going to try to find some pictures of Rajiv through the ages to share on social media. And I think, Caroline, we're going to have a photo, a shot of Gruesome Playground Barbie. It's worth the scroll. I cannot wait. Um, Well, that is our time for this week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Half Hour, brought to you by Steppenwolf Theatre Company. And thanks again to our guest this week, Rajiv Joseph. Today's episode was generously sponsored by Lori Ann Cladis. You can check out Red Folder by subscribing to Steppenwolf Now, our new streaming platform featuring six digital pieces by some of the most exciting voices in the American theatre. Steppenwolf Now memberships are currently available. And for a limited time, we're extending an exclusive deal just for half-hour listeners. That's you. $25 off when you use the code HALFHOUR at steppenwolf.org slash now. Half Hour is produced by Patrick Sockham, mixed and edited by Matthew Chapman. The theme music for Half Hour is by Michael Bodine and Rob Milburn. The voice of this episode's stage manager was Michelle Medvin. Special thanks to Aaron Cook, Joel Mormon, Kara Henry, Christopher Huizer, Kirsten Adams, Madeline Long, Corinne Florentino, and all the folks at Steppenwolf. Follow us on Twitter at SteppenwolfTHTR or on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always get in touch by emailing halfhour at steppenwolf.org. We love hearing from listeners. You can contact us with questions, thoughts, memories, almost whatever's on your mind. I promise someone will get back to you. And in two weeks, we will be back with a conversation that I was lucky enough to have with ensemble member Sandra Marquez. The best. Mm. The best. 
Okay, friends, till next time, this is Cliff Chamberlain. James Vincent Meredith. Karen Rodriguez. And Caroline Neff. A lifetime to engage, half hour to places. <laughs>